I thought you were still going to be traveling, so I didn't read any more Lewis. Oh. 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 <laughs> That's disappointing. We're, it is. I agree. But I didn't know what the... Uh, what the verdict was uh, for today? What the verdict was. I thought, yeah. For some reason, I thought you were still going to be down in the uh, nether reaches of the south. I was. I well, I don't know. I yeah. Yeah. I was I decided to get well, okay, so here's what happened. Um I end up having some guys come in for because you know the CREC council is going on. Right. And so I had some friends come in town and they needed a place to stay. And so um I gave up my house and I was like, hey, you guys come stay with me. Poor folks, pray for them. So <laughs> then they got they got you know nine of us that they just bunked up with a pastor and an elder. Uh, from South Carolina, Greenville, and uh, oh, okay, yeah, and so they they gonna need lots of prayer. They got a from a three year old all the way up to a fifteen, almost sixteen year old. Then me, then me and Sharon. So <laughs> they wanted it. They get all they want from That's it. That's true. They so, give them everything. And I'm gonna make them do shows too. I'm gonna make them. I'm gonna. They're gonna be working. Woo! That dog was not playing. Would you step on the dog? No, he was. He's he's confused. He wants to get in my lap and then he doesn't, and, and then he does. You stepped on the dog, did you? <laughs> no. Ah. Uh. Yeah, I say up, and he lays down. He's a very well trained dog. Up, <laughs> and then he looks at me like, "Why? Why? You gonna show me off?" Yeah. Okay. Right, right before, right before we were about to get on here, you messed up my whole train of thought. Um, can we talk about what you're working on right now? Is it how far are yeah. we out from launching? I, or well, I I thought it would be up there today. So oh, is and ready is to, it going it, to be? It should be. I sent everything over, so it should be up and ready to be signed up to today. So oh, that'll be awesome. Okay, so oh man, let's just open it up. So does this mean you don't want to talk about images, Spencer's, uh, Spencer's images of life? Then is that what you're telling no, me? No, I mean we we still can. I'm just it's going to be a little bit less um, familiar because I haven't read it since the last time I read it. I haven't read the next section. Well, that kind of is good because I read it, but I read it being tired. So okay, it was kind of like uh, it's not my <laughs> my best. And so I was rereading it again, which man, I do want. Do you think that you can do a recap of where we're at so far? Because from where we started to where we're currently at, um, and I want to do one of those things, Jason, where you remember the karate kid where he's learning how to fight, but he doesn't know he's learning how to fight. Yes. And, yeah. and he's just sanding stuff, sanding the floor, and he's cutting <laughs> the fence, and he's waxing the cars. I be- I've realized now that that's officially a really old movie. Was that 30 years ago, if not more? Yeah. So it's officially an old movie. Yeah, it's been it's well, it's been rebooted twice now, basically. Okay, that's how old it is. Yeah, you know, I guess you're right. Dang, I'm old. Yeah, and, and that's true. <laughs> oh, We're old. Dang, we went and got old. I didn't think about that, but yeah, it has been rebooted twice, and so, but and nobody's really taken and done a good enough job as they did on the first one. The original was. Really no, there good. Was ma- I- the, there was magic to it, even though the like the karate was was better in the reboot with Jackie Chan and Will yes. Smith's son. 
easily. The I guess it was kung fu instead of karate, but the that makes uh, a difference. <laughs> it does. I think the magic wasn't there. Um, in the in the even though I it was good, I enjoyed it. I mean, I went and watched it, and I was like, oh yeah, it was, it was a fine movie. But there was a magic to the first one, um, that uh, I think that extended into Cobra Kai. I mean, I think there was something magical about what they created that they've been able to keep um keep it going well yeah um my whole my my whole reason for bringing that up is because there is a lot of things that here i'll give you an example there's a lot of things that we do that we don't know that that god is using for us to do and to make us and to train us and there's muscles that we don't didn't know we were flexing that we're flexing and it's almost like, so I'll take another karate one, but it's almost like Neo in the Matrix when he starts figuring it out, right? <laughs> yeah, right. After his resurrection, he's just like, I know stuff. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, can, I can do things. And I feel like a lot of our conversations that we're having are a lot like that when it comes to the karate kid. There, there's a lot of things we're talking about, especially lately, because we've been talking a lot about um, Edmund Spencer and C.S. Lewis and the images of life. And it doesn't seem like I think that these things really have any applicability, applicability, immediate applicability. And I see guys who are at least on our side, who are good guys, really get lost in this world because it's really an important reality. Cosmology is super important, but then nobody lets you know how how to use it or that it's here's what you've learned. And there's that moment in the Karate Kid where out of nowhere um he's fussing at his teacher mr miyagi and mr miyagi gets fed up with him fussing and and basically says all right sand the floor daniel lewis was like what he's like sand the floor and then mr miyagi throws a kick or something you know and he's like he blocked it and he didn't (laughs) know that i didn't know i knew how to block i thought i'd just been sanding floors and then Mr. Miyagi throws a punch, like paint the fence, and he paints the fence, and, Mr. and then he blocks Mr. Miyagi's punch, and all of a sudden Mr. Miyagi starts calling out stuff, and Daniel, without any question, just reflex starts doing it, and he realizes in that moment, and then Mr. Miyagi just gets done throwing all these punches, and he bows at Daniel Larusso, and Daniel Larusso walks away, doing all the moves, but doing them in a karate form instead of with a paintbrush, and right. Instead of like on his knees, and you know, he 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 finally got it. Like, oh, I know karate, and I think that that's a lot of kind of the things we're talking about right now. Is like, oh, you know, believe it or not, these are very rich theological and virtuous and foundational pieces to your Christian walk, and yeah, and so you you don't know it until you get into that moment. And so I just would love to go back and kind of get a recap of kind of where we. Where we're at, and then where we're going to go, maybe even too. Well, with, you know, I, with, with this, with with Edmund Spencer, yeah, 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 well, and the C.S. I, Lewis, too, I guess. I think so. I I think it's a it's a little like, um, it, it, so instead of you know the wax on wax off and it's which is muscle memory, it's habits of thought that we're trying to develop. Right, is that that our thought habits um, kind of wander in particular paths, um, and they do, you know, that already. And mm. 
um, we're trying to find those places where our thought habits wander, um, you know, in the dark wood and say, well, hey, come over here and let's hike the peak. Let's see what we can see and and get into the habit of hiking the peak um, instead of, you know, the the whatever walks through the the darkness that we're taking. Um, and so developing those habits of thought, what we don't we we don't realize how practical it is until you know it starts just coming out of us because when you say i'm gonna go start practicing my cosmology right there's no direct way to practice a cosmology um but it but it sneaks up on you when you see something in a way you wouldn't have seen it before Mm -hmm. um you know the the that moment when you say oh the um oh the the you know the spring is coming oh there's this is like going through resurrection you know that those first times you mo- notice those sorts of things um or notice something it you know in your and, and are able to point something out to your family um at the you know along the way you know hey look at all these trees you know jesus died on one of these you know that sort of thing i, I mean i'm uh, the one of the books I'm reading right now uh, is called uh, it's in the other room it's called the tree of Yggdrasil oh you said about it, that last time yeah yeah and it's just going through um, it's actually going through uh, the Germanic uh, myths of of basically magic trees and showing the way that God prepped the imagination um, poetically for the German people to understand the cross. Uh, and it's really amazing, but it also, you, you realize, Oh, well, is my imagination being discipled, right? Cause the spirit was discipling the German imagination. Um, and there's another really great book called, um, the, I think it's called the Raven in the the Raven in the Cross, um, about the discipleship of the German imagination in the Middle Ages. Um, but we don't think of our imagination as something that needs to be discipled, and but we also don't realize how our imagination is guiding and directing um, our the uh, our the the habits that our thoughts go through. Um, and so the um, I like to think of it as landscaping imaginative landscaping you're landscaping your imagination or your imagination is being landscaped um and uh there's a lot of weeding that needs to be done but also there's a lot of planting that needs to be done and spencer the uh, spencer's images of life is is one of the things that i i found really helpful in weeding and replanting within my imagination um because Spencer is sort of the the last um, the the last great English writer before the Enlightenment um, before the Enlightenment take holds. He, he's the last of the the great medievals, um, even though he's you know an Elizabethan. Uh, but there there was overlap there, right? So um, you know the that Elizabethan era uh, is sort of the but it's before the enlightenment had kicked off, but it hadn't affected the popular imagination yet. Um, so you're just, so, um, 
what Lewis does is he goes through and he gives us all of the different places where it's hard for a modern person to understand what uh, Spencer is doing because our our imagination has been discipled by a different uh, by a different cosmos um, has been formed by a different cosmos. So I think what, what, what's forming it now. Like when you think about what's uh well, well, so, so th- think of it, think of it this way. So that I think one of um, one of the, the great kind of comedic writers of the 20th century was a, a man named Douglas Adams. And he, he was, uh, he was a nihilist of the kind of technical order. So we tend to think of, of nihilism as a, a moral philosophy. There's no such thing as right and wrong, but there's, but nihilism started as a metaphysic uh, where you define everything. You, you can't know the essence of a thing. You can only define a thing by what it's not. Mm. Uh, and, Douglas Adams was a nihilist of that order and he wrote very funny he he basically kept the nihilism um kept the the he he chained nihilism in one place with humor cuz nihilism doesn't stay in one place once you let it in anywhere it takes over everything eventually and so yeah. he sort of chained chained it in one place with humor so i read a lot of Douglas Adams and i played the the uh, Douglas Adams the uh, um so his his big um you know his, his series um was the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that was the series oh yeah that, that yeah. Went, yeah that made okay they, so they made a movie out of it which was fine not great but it's kind of bonk yeah the books yeah it was just like this this old this is only for people that already know and love the book because it's a bunch of inside jokes um that yes. and that doesn't that doesn't work for a movie like hey here's a series of inside jokes for people um but it, but i guess that was i mean did you did you watch the weird al um movie that he did no the the, 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 no i haven't seen that one yet it's, oh my gosh it's really funny it's a series of inside jokes but it's weird al like that's the, the joke is that everybody's in on the joke um <laughs> It's so it's a it's a satire. It's so his biopic is a satire of biopics, um, and so it's very funny. And that's perfect. That's weird out <laughs> yeah, for you. That's weird out for you, right? Exactly. So you know, um, and it started as somebody making a fake trailer that he saw and loved, <laughs> and was like, "Hey, I got to meet these people." They made a fake trailer about a satirical biopic above my life, um, and and then it ended up growing into a you know a Roku original. But the, um, but what you have with Douglas Adams is he wrote his argument against, we, so what he called the the fine tuning of the universe. He he said that's the that's the strongest argument for the existence of God, and and if you can um, show that the universe is not fine tuned by a outside source. Um, then you can prove that there's no such thing as God. If you can't, then you can't prove that there's no such thing as God because the universe is so fine-tuned. And so he he came up with this argument, which is um, where he says the appearance of fine-tuning is actually an illusion. Right? The, the universe 
is it's only fine tuned because um, it was formed by the forces that um, that ha- that it looks like it's tuned to. But the forces actually formed the world. And so when we say it's so perfectly formed to these particular forces, it's because the forces tuned it. And he said, it's like a puddle that's going to look around and say, man, we fit perfect. This puddle, we fit perfectly into this hole. We must be fine tuned for this hole. Well, actually the, the hole is what forms the puddle. Um, And so, uh, but so his whole thing is the, um, nature or the, the there isn't a nature of things so matter ends up being formed into the shape of the forces that are applied to it matter is is a flexible thing and so it's formed into the shape of the of the forces that are applied to it and um that is uh, so th- that's what you have uh, that's why the, there's the appearance of fine tuning because we're fitting so perfectly into the puddle, into the hole that turned us into this puddle. We, the forces of nature, the the forces of the forces of gravity, the 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 forces of physics, um, have been have shaped us into this particular shape. Well, all of the things about modernity, um, all of the assumptions of modernity are right there in that argument. Right, because so you realize this is how we know it comes down to assumptions. Yeah, because right. there's a lot um, of assumptions there. A lot of assumptions there. And when I first read that, it it bothered me for a long time because I couldn't, I didn't know the answer. I couldn't, you know, at, at, when I came across it as a young man in my twenties, early twenties, I didn't know the answer. Now I knew Jesus, so I knew there was an answer. <laughs> right? I had met the Creator God, so I knew there was an answer. I just hadn't, I just couldn't. I didn't have it yet, uh, but but it was it was actually through studying um, C.S. Lewis's medieval understanding of the world that I came to understand, and it was in in particular reading about Boethius and then you know reading and studying Boethius and the effect that Boethius's metaphysic had on the Middle Ages. That is that why I you got finally? To, is that why you started reading Boethius? Uh, Remember you said, "Go ahead." I remember you said that you picked out one book of the Bible to really to really saturate yourself in one book of history, right? To really understand it, and then one character. Yeah, at C.S. C.S. Lewis said, if you can imaginatively um, put yourself into Boethius's mind, then you are a medieval, right? He said that's the that is he is the 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 because the difference between Boethius and modern philosophers is the difference between a medieval and a modern. And so, and so the, cause, cause the assumptions in that argument are one that, um, that matter is just putty is a flexible thing, right? That it, it can, it can take whatever shape, right? That the, and that there isn't a relationship between the shape, the external shape of a thing and an internal essence, there is no relationship or what a nihilist would say uh, a metaphysical nihilist would say is if there is one we don't have access to it there's no way to get to the um the essence of a thing so um since we don't have access to it we we it doesn't 
matter, right? So all we can do is say, well, this is in this shape. And since it's in this shape, it's not any of these other things. We, we don't have access to the essence of a thing. Uh, and, uh, but Boethius, or and the medieval and the, I mean, the Christian argument is, well, God's word formed it. And they've had disagreements about the relationship between God's word and the external. But whatever God calls a thing is what it is and or what it becomes, right? When God calls a thing into existence, his word is the essence of it, right? And then they've, you know, we've argued about whether that word stays in his mind, whether that word is embedded within the thing, whether that word is, is, you know, it has to do with the story as a whole, or, you know, if it's a metaphorical relationship versus an, an or an analogical relationship, right? We have all of these arguments, but every Christian agrees that that word is, is and or gives a thing its essence, right? Um, that there, and so we do have access to it and we have access to it in two ways through the scriptures and we have access to it through natural revelation, right? That nature itself will tell us what it is. And we're the kind of creature that receives the communication that nature gives and we receive it poetically, right? That is that's the difference. So it's a difference in what kind of creature we are when I, and what our relationship is to this place. And then what kind, what kind of place this is, this is the, this is the place that God created. Uh, so, but we, I gotta say real quick, this is the first time since we've done X unplug that I've been able to actually smoke my pipe and listen to you. And I don't know what is different about this? I don't know if it's you or the pipe, but you sound so much better when I have tobacco. I just, <laughs> I just want to say that real quick. You do, and it feels really, yeah. really good. Anyway, you were, you were saying. Yeah, we had was it, was it Machen that said, uh, tobacco. He said, "What tobacco and bourbon are the two great lubricants of male fellowship that God has given us, or something along those lines." I like that guy. <laughs> yeah, I do those too. are some of the things that we're missing. I ain't gonna lie. Yeah, we just some uh, of that. I just got my boy, my, my boys turned 13 and 18. So they got pipes this year. Oh, I saw you so, got a new pipe too. Didn't you? Yeah. I got a new pipe too. I'm, um, it's in the, it's over in the other room, but it's, I really like it. It's, it's, uh, like a wizard pipe. Technically all pipes are wizard pipes, but <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I interrupted you. Um, so, but I think that, so you've got Boethius is at the beginning and he is formulating. And it's funny because he's formulating it philosophically, but he's actually a much more poetic writer um, because he believes that the world has a fundamental poetic nature that um, his philosophy even ends up being very poetic. He's actually quite fun to read. Um, he, his, his, uh, and he, there were two books that formulated the vocabulary of, of the Trinity uh, for the medievals, and it was Augustine and Boethius. So Boethius's De Trinitas um, on the Trinity is fantastic. It's it's and that's it's actually easier to read. I think it's probably a better place to start than Augustine's book on the Trinity because Augustine has um, he has more interlocutors, more people he's arguing with, um, and so he uh, so it's a little bit more complex. And whereas Boethius is setting out to make a positive statement of 
the uh, of the trinity and it's very good it's it's uh so every once in a while you'll hear people say like oh boethius was this you know he he was um a you know his christianity is suspect or but it's not at all if you read his writings he um he he has some great great treatises on uh you know what is the what is the gospel like event he like wrote evangelistic treatises he wrote on the trinity um so he, but his um book on philosophy the consolation of philosophy is the most is the most famous and was the most famous throughout the middle ages um and there's quite a bit in there that ends up it uh discipling the medieval mind um and it's everything from sovereignty to, uh being above fate uh which is kind of the the death nail um, the the last nail in the coffin for a pagan way of thinking about history, um, Boethius he pounds the last nail by giving the image of so- of God's sovereignty over above fate, where fate is not outside uh, or above or in competition with God anymore, um, and that and every major um, m- medieval writer. Um, he, except for the you know post Anglo-Saxons in in England, every other major um, medieval writer uses his particular um, image about fate called the Wheel of Fortune. In fact, I mean we've got a we've got a game on television about the Wheel of Fortune now. I didn't know that's and, where that came from. Yeah, in fact, yeah, and you know, if, I don't know if you read entertainment news, but Vanna White just signed a new contract. Tavana. Is she still doing that? She's still doing it. So, yeah, it's oh, that crazy. Wow. So, Wait, isn't she's she supposed to be striking right now. Uh, the writers are, but I don't think you need writers for um, Wheel of Fortune. For, I, yeah, Wheel of Fortune probably. It's, it's writers and who else? It's not just writers. It's writers, writers and actors. Actors. Yeah, she would be considered think... like because she's union. Yeah, I guess she... as an actress. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Wheel of Fortune isn't going right now, but I know that Vanna just signed another contract. Well, the strike is good for some and not for others. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't cancel Vanna. That's just doesn't matter. No, no, you can cancel Vanna. No, no, no. She's not. <laughs> she's not off the table. You can cancel Vanna. Yeah. <laughs> but the 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 point being that Boethius's view of um of the uh, of what you would call natural revelation mm. um, is at the heart of the medieval understanding of reality, right? So that you not, so when you get to Spencer, so he, he talks about, um, you know, when, when Lewis is explaining, for example, the pageants uh, yes. of, of Spencer, right? That, that, that was in the image um, of evil, wasn't it? He starts bringing through the pageant right in the beginning of the image of evil. Yeah, well, there's pageants all throughout, but yeah, right, to, right at the beginning, he starts talking about these pageants and how that's a particular medieval cosmological understanding. Right, we've basically gotten rid of pageants, and I yeah. mean, you might still get a parade now and then. Um, you, know, you I know if you're down in uh, New Orleans, you know you're going to get parades and. Uh, we just get booty, beauty pageants is all we get now. Yeah, you get uh, yeah that that's the closest you're gonna get. And 
the thing that's different is a beauty pageant. You've got, um, you're you're trying to unveil the beauty in in front of you mm. and put it on display, mm. rather than veil. Uh, you're trying to veil the veil in order to sh- in a medieval pageant. You're putting a veil over the veil to remind you that it's a veil. So you put on a costume um, to remind you that you're more that than your day in day out self. Right, that your day in day out self is actually a veil covering an eternal being, uh, a being uh, with the capacity for uh, eternal glories and pleasures and growth and um, you know that that you the I mean my my favorite argument for the existence of God is that every time you experience a pleasure, when you come back to that pleasure, the pleasure feels less pleasurable, right there. Um, but that's not because, um, our, it's because our capacity for pleasure is actually expanded by the experience of pleasure. And unless there is an eternal and infinite source of pleasure to be a creature whose capacity for pleasure continues to grow throughout our life is, uh, it means that we're just a, a clown in some sort of, um, metaphysical circus right uh because it's the guarantee that there's no uh that there's no ultimate fulfillment right if every time you experience pleasure your capacity for pleasure grows but the thing that gives pleasure doesn't shrinks right, right? it's yeah oh. it shrinks in 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 relationship to to our capacity right well um the, the hey. scriptures come and they they that's exactly the thing that that's one of the many things that they address regularly at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore, right? That our capacity for the kind of creature we are is a creature whose capacity for pleasure grows and grows and grows. If we're also infinite beings, which we are then, and we are created to have fellowship with an infinite God, which we are, then that capacity is good news that capacity to grow in our experience of pleasure is good news um, it, rather than the bad news that it is when you talk to all the existential philosophers. It's an anti-existential argument for the existence of God. <laughs> but you know, I've been really spending a lot of time lately with my family inside of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're making our way through the Bible. When Leviticus was interesting. Numbers, numbers, I mean, wow. And then you get to Deuteronomy and you start realizing just how bad idols treat their worshipers. Right. And I don't, and it's so funny because I think I've gone through and thought about um, Deuteronomy before previously. And I've listened to other people talk about it as a book of what you can't do and here you shouldn't act this way and don't engage like this. But it's, that's not actually, it's more idolatry. An idol worship is going to destroy you. Here's how not to be destroyed, and here's where you'll find joy. Here's where you'll find yep. exceedingly abundant amount of pleasure, I guess you could say, too, and, and satisfaction. Um, and then it, it get to the end of Deuteronomy, he's like, if you go towards the idol way, I'll destroy, I'll judge, right? And then I'll ask you where, where your priests and your gods who are supposed to speak for you, you know, and... Because the, the, your your hunger and your desire to chase after idols 
is is the thing that the fulfillment from that you will get filled, but you'll get filled in judgment, you know? Right. Right. And it's like it's God being so kind to try and tell you this is not good for you. This is not a great diet for you. This won't really satisfy at the end of the day. It will give you there will be some satisfaction in judgment, but it's not going to satisfy in joy. And it's so funny you say that because as you as you as you make something that idle, the, the more you'll run to it to, and you'll beg for it to satisfy. I don't know why we just don't say, I I know this is not going to satisfy. Why am I doing this? Um, we, we don't do that. We continue to go and chase after, like there's something that we're going to drink. Like you said, before we turn, you said this before you said we turn people into vampires. Yeah. Like we'll turn, we'll turn anything into, the, you know, we'll try and get out of the person or the thing God, who is a gift giver of the thing, but we'll try and get that out of them. And so we make them an idol. And I don't even think we know that we're doing it like that. No. Have you, have you heard Olivia Rodrigo's new song vampire? No. Oh, it's a breakup song. It's fantastic. It's about the realization that her ex-boyfriend was a vampire. (laughs) It's so good. She's, she's actually quite a good lyricist. Um, But yeah, that where she, basically is looking back at her relationship and saying you only took and took and took i never received any love um and i got smaller and smaller and smaller the longer we were together there's you know um and that that's the that is um that's what idols do right i because they take but can't give Mm. Um, that's the whole that's the whole point um and i think that there is something you know i this is this is the the book i've been another book i've been reading right now i just picked it up it's a history the of best horror movie, let me, the, the best scary movies of all time it's history of horror cinema um and i but because i that's my probably real, my that's the book you won't find in most christians library <laughs> well I, but i i've realized that one that we have we have inverted the monstrous and that um in our imaginations. And that's one of the reasons that we um, can't judge properly. We can't tell where the monsters are uh, as a society. Um, And the, so I'm, I'm reading another book. It's just called monster. uh, And it's by a feminist film critic. Um, It's it's actually a brilliant book, but it's a, it's, she was walking through the, the immorality the immorality of the of the some of the most famous leftist filmmakers and asking why do they get a pass and these other people don't mm-hmm. why did some why did why did we go why why are there um why do we let a leftist filmmaker get a pass even though we know he raped a 13 year old mm but we give him a pass and we call him a genius and say, that's okay because he has our, he, he agrees with our ideology. And so we're, we let, we, as long as a, a monster has our ideology, we'll let him pass. It's really, a, and he, she said, I, I catch myself doing it and then realize. And so it's, it's all about how do we face what, what stories do we tell to face down when real life monsters, when we meet them, and I don't know any Christians writing about it, which is why I end up having to find a feminist film critic. Exploring what is she saying? 
um, well, I'm about halfway through the book, but so far what she says is that, um, so she's a feminist. So she often says, uh, so she'll often say part of this is just because they're a man, men get away with anything. Right. But, but when she's giving a deeper criticism, what she says is that, um, that we know that there's a monstrousness within each of us. And so she's a Calvinist. I know that's the whole thing. That's the thing that's it, it's amazing. And she's See, very no thoughtful. Such thing as yeah. No. And so she's so she's very thoughtful. I mean, she's even got a whole section about how um, you know, when she was young, she always talked about how raising children was something that held women back. And then she had her own children. She was like, but then I realized I actually don't care about my career compared to the way I care about my children. She's like, so what? So it doesn't. So she said it, it has challenged um, the, how much of this is actually a ex- external societal pressure and how much is just, I actually like being a mom. See, you know, Jason, when you talk like that, like hearing these people, this is something, man. So, you know, I was just at G3 um, yeah. for the conference and it was really nice. Um, something that I'm coming to realize as a theonomist, as a post-millennialist, as a Presbyterian, it, it might be a form of arrogance, I think, in the way that I'm thinking about this. But I, I, I really believe that everybody agrees with me. <laughs> that is becoming my default position. I just haven't done a good enough job of convincing them. That they agree with you already. Yeah, they agree with me already. Yeah. And most of the conversations that I had and are and still currently having with some of these people, I realize I've been using because I let me start here. I think some of the things that um I've learned in p- learning poetry, the conversation we've been having back and forth, the way to engage people, presupposition apologetics, that stuff that we learn p- apologetically, the things that we learn for argumentation's sake, isn't for us to use on the face of it in an argument that's stuff for us to know that is stuff for Mm -hmm. us to be built up in and have a knowledge of so that we can make better uh, persuasive arguments not for us to use as the argument right so that stuff is for developing us so that the other muscle works well so it's like the fuel i guess you can say it's the fuel you put into yourself so that the car can go right but when the car goes, nobody sees the sparks and fires and the spark plugs. They don't, they don't even need to know that that stuff's happening. They just need, need to know the car moves. And so I found out that those things are more for me to be able to present persuasive, convincing arguments to people who don't know that they agree with me yet. And so I, I've stopped using presuppositionalism as, well, I'm a presuppositionalist and talk like that, you know, and, and I've just started saying what is it that i know that they already believe about god's world that is true and how do i show them the next connecting piece to that based off of what they, they already believe and so right. i let them answer the question in one way or another that i i guess i ask the questions to get them to say the things I, they know that they already believe that agree with me right right well and i think this is this, this is the difference between a shafirian presuppositionalist right that says oh hey they have to already be resting on christ right in their mind okay well that gives me a connecting point to right right, i just have to find it right somewhere they're already assuming god (laughs) right right Right. 
It's there. They have to. They There's can't no help way around it. it. They can't help it. So you say, okay, they're already sitting in God's lap. I just have to talk them out of slapping him in the face, right? And you know, convince them that he's he's pulling them up there to try and hug them, and you're slapping him in the face. Just you know, receive the love of the Lord. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a different you know, it's a different mentality than I think a lot of presuppositionalists. They see that they they instead approach it, and I I don't mean this in a reading motive sort of way, but with a jealousy that says, Hey, you don't get to do that. And there's a certain, mm. like as an, as an idolater, you've got to, you, you, you need to rest. You need to trust in your idols if, as an idolater and don't trust. You don't get to trust in my, the Lord. Um, there's a, and there's a certain time and a place when that's appropriate, but it's actually not, there's, it's not most of the time in the places. Right. Um, but, you know that we we take you know the the Bonson Stein debate and act like we're always in it um when we're actually not most of the time every once in a while we are um but most of the time we're that's not the we're not in that um, but even i, I guess spot. even that debate is argues even for my position where it's like Bonson just proved that Stein believed you know in his position <laughs> yeah right? for the most part that's what was so amazing about but and that goes back to i, I kind of want to make the point about the the lady who is the feminist you know until god brings new life um she can't see it she can't become alive she can't be made new but because people live in god's world they're they're required to function off of all those principles whether they like it or not or whether they like it or not they can't help right. but function off of those principles, you know? And so it, it's, so I've been, people are post-millennial, people are Calvinistic, people are um, covenantal, and uh, most of them just don't know it. So, you know, it's funny, I've been talking to guys about the whole Christian nationalism stuff and, and guys, a lot of people about um, even post-millennialism and, it's been funny to watch a lot of them present it properly. They become pretty hardcore Christian nationalists. And what I mean by that is not like Christian nationalism as it's traditionally should be known. I mean by Christian patriot or, you know, uh, or a zeal for a Christian nation. Like, I think everybody wants that. Nobody wants right. to be sitting up here and say, I would love to be like quartered and hung and <laughs> right. my guts right. dragged out of me like nobody wants that and that's the only alternative you have everybody acts like there's some middle between like oh you don't have to have that no no you only get one or the other right <laughs> you know you do you you do run into it every once in a while in church history they they it because it had there's a term for it um that it's called the white martyr the or, or the in they're the ones that desire martyrdom they they seek out martyrdom and because you have regularly you have theologians having to explain to people hey that's actually not okay it's not okay to seek out martyrdom that's not the proper use of no your jason we want the church to be moving forward in time and history and it only moves forward through the blood of the christians <laughs> right so i have to go spill my blood <laughs> <laughs> when that and but but because the reality is there's always a way to spill your blood, but it usually looks like taking care, you know, having a nice relationship with your neighbor. Like that's the, it's, it has to hospitality be with like, is a yeah. hospitality and um, raising kids. And like, that's the normal way that we 
spill our blood and deny ourselves. And, um, and then if we're, and, and sometimes we also have the honor of being martyred by a government official or, you know, and something, but um, we always have the honor of giving away our lives to our neighbors, you neighbors know, and friends and family. As you're talking about that, I was just thinking we were talking, we have reading with the family Deuteronomy a chapter every night and, Boy, we don't take hospitality as seriously as God does. God took yeah. hospitality so seriously that he cleared some folks clean off of the deck because they didn't have show hospitality. And he's telling Israel that when you get into your land and you have sojourners coming through you, don't don't treat them like you were treated when you got free from slavery. No one showed, and those people didn't show you hospitality. Matter of fact, some of them could, wouldn't allow for generations to or ever to come into the temple because they never showed hospitality. I think yeah. even the when they were in the need, even the Egyptians had to have three generations before they could come in. But they were, but the Moabites gone. Yeah, no, because they because that when when they met you in the wilderness, they tried to take advantage of yes. your weakness. Right. Yes. Yeah. Out. You're gone. Yep. And there were some others when you were passing through, they didn't show you, they wouldn't let you pass through along the way. Right. And, and so there's like, he marks them out. I'm like, man, God don't play. He remembers. And like hospitality is one of those things that brings serious judgment on you not to consider, not to do. Um, and, and it's, and it's interesting because it's not just for people who are in your tribe. Right. Hospitality is a requirement as a human being. It's right. It's, it covers everybody. And God doesn't play about that. And yet that's one of the few things that we know how to do well. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like, oh, we're in, it's anyway. So, but I, I interrupted your Boethius and where you were going with that. You were getting well, set up those foundations yeah. for what we've been learning. So I, I think the, the beginning of it is um, that when you've got these pageants, um, the it's saying that there is a, deeper reality that um that the that day in day out life is a veil over right so any the mm. your your average neighbor is um is an eternal being the, the plumber that comes over to your house is an eternal being right. uh, and that and they are built for a glory far beyond what you could handle if you were to just run into it straight and so instead god veils us um with the day in and he veils that etern eternal um eternal glory with a covering of the of the normal parts of life um but the pageant was a way of remembering so the the only the only real pageant that um that survives we've got other pageants but the the only pageant that survives from the middle ages is Halloween uh, where we put everybody in a costume and we send them as beggars door to door. Right. The, um, and the, and the beggar receives the best that um, thing that there is, right. The beggar receives the candy. So um, that's a, that is a medieval pageant. Interesting. Where um, you remember you're more than what you're more than who you are. Right, you're much more than who you are in your day in and day out life, um, but you're also much uh, more in need than you are 
than than you like to think. Um, and in spite of it being grace that God gives us, He does He gives us the best things, not because we deserve it, but because we're beggars and He's that kind of God. <laughs> so the we show up as beggars um, and walk away with with the cake, you know <laughs> that that sort of mentality. Uh, or that sort of reality is uh, is put on display uh, by a pageant, uh, by a, a, a pageant of, a, by the pageantry of Halloween. Um, and Will Christmas it, be a pageant too? Is Christmas a form of a pageant? Well, we've, we've mostly removed all of the pageantry from Christmas, right? So you, so you the, might, there's a little bit, you see a oh, little no, bit here yeah, and yeah, there. Yeah. I yeah, got it. With, um, and you know, you see a little bit, a little bit of it is left over with Easter, um, but most yeah, but of nobody's pageantry, dressing up yeah yeah exactly well it, um it, it you we still have like easter dresses and things like that um that i think are, right. are good and appropriate but it's not really a f- pageant the way uh they used to have you know that um a, you know a parade every you know everybody in costumes and they parade and um they, they uh so and i think that's just because our cosmology doesn't allow for pageantry anymore right they used to look up at the sky and see a pageant right the stars were a pageant that they were showing us something beyond themselves um that there was a deeper reality um at play up there um and so we but all of that is gone uh you all, all of you know, we we don't even i mean most of us don't even know the zodiac anymore so we don't know what pageant god has put in the sky we don't um we don't have any sort of um you know and and it and if we have any relation if we know the zodiac it's because we had some sort of relationship to astrology which is not the pageantry of the scriptures you know the the, the pageantry of the skies is not is not astrological it's a you know it's a story um so the um and you started you know you had in the 18th century you started having as the as it was forgotten out of kind of the normal parlance um that you started having people try to write it down and so there's a couple of good books that were written in the 17 1800s uh called like the gospel in the stars and things where they tried to record all right. Here's what you know. Here's I'm Amazon. What, yeah, I think that one you can probably. I mean, it's you can probably get a PDF or a free Kindle of it. It's old, um, but then D. James Kennedy did a. He wrote a book about the gospel in the stars, as well. So this is not like Kennedy crazy stuff. Uh, Gordon Wenham also. He's got some really good stuff on the pageantry of the of the stars. And like, okay, the those, are, those dudes are just Presbyterians, right? They're just you're there's they're like day in, day out Presbyterians. So I'm not saying anything crazy. <laughs> Wait, this is crazy. Joseph Sisis? Sisis, yeah. Oh, it's on Kindle too. Okay, I might get the one on Kindle. So who else? Okay, Joseph Sisis, D. James. Actually, D- Gor- yeah, Gordon Wenham's uh commentary on numbers. He's got a whole section on Oh, I uh, have his Proverbs. Is that Gordon Wenham? That's Gordon Wenham, yeah. He's great. He's, but his his commentary on numbers, um, it has a whole section on um, astrological, you know, it's just astrological community, you know, like that, 
kind of astrological pageantry because um, the book of numbers every number in there is an ast- is a astronomical number i've heard uh um james jordan talking about that the numbering of israel was to be the like a star set up right like some sort of yeah so that because of the prophecy that abraham um the promise to abraham your generation will be like your uh your tribe your people will be like the numbers of the stars and so the numbering yeah of israel was like the numbering of the stars I- right yeah where it's like you got 521,000 of these people and it takes mars 521 days to go around the sun and so that's okay a- gordon winham's deuteronomy or no um, uh, no numbers his numbers, numbers commentary i'm all stuck in deuteronomy all right i'm getting that one add that one Numbers and introduction and commentary. Yeah. And I think, yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the, um, uh, oh, this is on Kindle the, the too. Com- the commentary on Revelation, um, by Chilton has, has oh, yeah. really good stuff in there about it as well. I think that's where I found the Wenham. I think he footnoted Wenham. And so I went and found Wenham. And then Wenham footnoted Sice. Or Sisa, and that's how I found that one. Um, and then they also footnoted a, this French um, theologian that had a whole that had a really cool stuff on. No, nobody ever well. talks about stuff like that. I don't know. Like when, until you brought it up, I don't know who else talks about. I mean, you guys who people would put on the fringe. But but, but Wenham's not fringy. DJ no, not at all. Not fringy. Like th- these are just like middle-of-the-road Presbyterians, um, but they're just old enough. To have that to, another. To, that's yeah, interesting. Because they're just a part of just an old enough previous generation that you were still allowed <laughs> to talk about cosmology. Interesting. I interrupted you. Go, go ahead. So um, so as Spencer's, uh, as Lewis is working through it, he goes through the um the idea of pageantry um as a way of showing the difference between the cosmologies of the middle ages and the modern and then he um goes into the uh, allegorical nature of uh of communication right so that's when he talks about the false cupid uh, you know, the false cupid and um the way that we set up um we we have uh, an image of what false love is um that and that the medievals had a much more developed image of false love so and how we can learn from their image of false love and then he goes into the different kinds of gardens um at which which symbolize the different possible uses and misuses of our sexual uh, of our sexual life right so that there's that there's multiple proper um ways to understand our sexual life both in experience as well as an as an allegory right as we are living out living an allegory but also experiencing so this is kind of an existential and eternal or existential and allegorical layers to our own life and then there's a f- misuse of the experiential aspects you know of uh, and then of of the 
there's a misuse of that allegorical nature, right? So there's a way to use our to use our sexuality selfishly, and so we don't uh, we're not we're not properly living out the allegory, right? So we're living against life because life is designed a particular way. And so we're instead leaning into death. Um, you know, and so there's, and he does this with different kinds of gardens. And then there's a way to use our sexuality to attack God because we're made in the image of God. But there's also a way to lean into life and use, uh, and, um, live out the reality that our sexuality is one of the ways that God ha- fights death in history, right? So death becomes one of the rulers uh, of history because of our sin and isn't finally defeated until Jesus's second coming. But in the meantime, he's fighting death and he overcomes it within history on uh, in regular on a regular basis through the sexuality of humans and animals right so um we get to be a part of that lean into the life-giving reality of how god made us by getting married and having children and and raising up children that have children and having animals and pets and that that have you know you know babies and it, it and all of that is this continual overcoming of death that the Holy spirit is doing and we can walk with the spirit in our sexuality in that way. So we should, and then we, we can also honor God in an allegorical sense by living out um, the relationship that it's meant to symbolize. So anything that comes across our plates or anything that comes across our consumption that has um, wants us to stop having children, wants to destroy sexuality wants us to not be good stewards of creation that's pure demonic right yeah the right the that, devil that's hates, the whole the devil hates the, the devil hates babies because every baby is a reminder that god came as a baby right to destroy death and his reign oh, man we don't take that seriously enough no we Plus, really don't and i and i think that's one of those one of those things that we just we've walked away from one of the life-giving aspects of reality and said, no, thanks. <laughs> too, too complex. Mm. All right. That's good. So, so yeah, so that's the gardens, um, Belphoebe, Amaret, and Adonis. Um, and then the, um, and then he gets into um, the, the, well, and, and he that kind of flows into his understanding of the that the mutability of creation makes it possible for us to fall, but it also makes it possible for us to be redeemed because right? of so, those things you just named. Yeah, because right. of those things we just named, right? So the hist- so Gnosticism and modernity ha- is fundamentally a Gnostic, um, a, a Gnostic worldview. Gnosticism hates history, right? It it wants to. It thinks we need to be rescued out of history. Whereas God's under, you know, the, the scriptures give us a positive view of historical development, right? That being a part of history is in and of itself a blessing. And so the philosophical underpinnings of that have to do with the realities of what's called mutability, right? So you, you can't have 
the possibilities of growth without the possibilities of um, you, you can't have you have possibilities of growth without the possibilities of death. Right. So um, when God created this place, mutable, changeable, able to be changed. Um, and the, the, it was so that the human race could grow and mature as a, as a human race. Right. So, and, and this is what um, you really don't see. This is, this is something that's really hard for us to grasp as moderns because I don't think, well, because I think there was an attempt at secularizing this particular doctrine in a, in recent memory. Um, and, and so we've rejected the doctrine because of the people that tried to secularize it. So like you post-millennialism. had the, po, yeah, post-millennialism, right? So the, the idea that you could have a, a, the human race as a race could mature. Um, it means it can also demature or, you know, uh, retard go in, re, yeah exactly go in the wrong direction um, but without that ability to go in the wrong direction then you don't have the ability to go in the right direction and so um it, it's the 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 reality is that the human race grows in maturity sometimes but then it shrinks from maturity other times right um and that 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 there's a we've corporate... seen that yeah we really have and so you know right um and right now you've got, you see there are areas in the third world where the church is growing and, and people groups there are maturing and then other places where we're becoming more and more like children, um, you know, in the West uh, we're becoming more and more like children. They just, was it, this was last week that the, you no longer have a dress code for Congress, like things like yeah, that. Yeah. Right, like, right. 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 Um, like, oh yeah, look, we're the inf- we're infantil- infantilizing, infantilizing. We're moving more you, towards infants. But you know, you you only find the that kind of thing where judgment is, where idols are reigning. You don't find yep, it where absolutely. you know what I mean. So the immaturity is something that's like, oh yeah, this is judgment, especially for a nation like ours, right? A nation like ours that has been a mature nation and been maturing for a long time. You only get that. You only start dematuring like you said um when you false gods are cruel dude right false gods are cruel <laughs> yeah they they take and don't give they um they they you know they, they it's like a a eight pound leech you know <laughs> yes yes it's like man i don't know why i'm sick all the time I'm like well you got an eight pound leech on your back like no nah, i don't think that's it <laughs> it's just a part of my skin i, I could not be it so and then we get and then that brings us to where we are now the image of good um and that the uh basically the the we um we don't our imagination does have a picture of what goodness is everybody's imagination does and um, but there's a way of discipling that image within our imagination towards uh, true goodness. Um, and so for the Christian, you know, the, the ultimate ideal is Jesus. Um, but so often we actually we just have a picture of Jesus in our mind that isn't being informed poetically by the scriptures. So 
Um, and th- this is why you have sometimes people, you know, you have the, the, the one side where Jesus is constantly um, in the temple flipping tables. He's always got a whip. He's all, you know, um, and then on the other side that um, you've got the people that it's, Jesus is always carrying a lamb out of the wilderness um, and he, he was softly singing to it. And um, <laughs> the reality is both of those are true. Right. Um, you know, that's one person and each side, we use the other side's error to justify our error rather than trying to truly submit our imagination to be discipled by the scriptures. Um, I mean, I remember how when I, when I was a brand new Christian, um, I mean, it was in my baptism class. So I was getting ready to get baptized and um, the, the baptism class required that we pick a gospel and read it. All right. So we had to read through a gospel um, as, and then um, in a week. And so it, the, so we read, read it through and come in and then come in with questions. That was the idea. And I'm reading along and, Jesus says, Hey, we have to, or we, or they're supposed to pay taxes. And Jesus says, uh, it's, it's not required, uh, uh, in the true authority structure of reality, but go fishing and pull up a fish and you'll find a couple of coins in there and we'll go pay. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck? What just I happened? Don't I don't understand what's going on. I have n- and so I came in and I, I was like, I'm reading this. I don't get, I have no idea. I don't get what's going on. And thankfully um, m- the person teaching my baptism class, um, it's Bruce Gore is great teacher. He, he said, that is the experience of your whole life. Right. That's what following Jesus is like, wait, what? I, Jesus, I don't understand. He's like, well, I'm, you're going to learn more what I'm like, more and more what I'm like constantly. And it's constant. The, the person of Jesus um, the personality of Jesus, what Jesus is really like, is will constantly be cha- a challenge um, as you grow and change because um, it's the that's who that's that's the whole point is getting to know Jesus and becoming like him. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what every prophecy is about. That's what everything everything is about getting to know Jesus and becoming more and more like him for in your personal Christian walk and. And I was like, all right, well, let's get baptized then, right? <laughs> and um, that was, I mean, I'm still grateful for that moment um, of uh, of discipleship that he took advantage of to um, basically, instead of saying, well, let me answer that particular question of seeing the wisdom of the moment, seeing in, the, in that moment that... Um, here's the wisdom to be learned. (laughs) And I mean, it was years of studying the gospels before I started to get any sort of handle on them. They're so challenging. Um, not, not in terms of being hard to read They're They are, they challenge the modern conception of who, of who I am, of what kind of place I live in, of what God is like. This is constantly, putting pressure on the what i have imagined for my image of good of perfect of of a good person of good human of of 
the rest a restored human all the of the of a restored world of what the nation is supposed to be like but this constant challenge um in the gospels uh, and really all the scriptures but the gospels um in particular are constantly challenging my imagined image of good mm-hmm. right they're constantly discipling mm-hmm. it the the more i spend time in the gospels the more i think i'm off here i'm off there man i'm off again um and then there's the process of like now that i know it <laughs> i'm also bad at applying it but that's a whole nother yeah that's some you know um, you know there's a uh, who was I talking to about this? But we, you know, I was talking on uh, Knox Unleashed. <laughs> That's what I'm calling it. I told you about that, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Knox Unleashed. I'm doing nightly. I was talking to David Reese on Friday, and you know, he was working through the prophet, priest, king function of. He's talking about dominion, and dominion has three ways that it flows out into the world and it operates through the office of prophet priest king right um and first with individual self and then through the family prophet priest and king has a husband is to be that in his house and then how the wife is to be the prophetess the priestess uh and the queen right um and how she helps him fulfill his offices or helps him fulfill dominion. And um, one of the things that was really interesting was that it takes, I'm understanding the priestly role is so important because you need that in order to be able to be kingly, right? Like you, you, the wisdom that it takes to be a king is to operate with the priestly laws and, and execute them as a king. And if you don't understand those, you don't gain wisdom, and so then you don't know how to apply it to a situation as you rule, even in your own home. And in the most simple things like, you know, it takes a king to be able to decipher between your three-year-old and your seven-year-old about who took whose toy and who deserves a spanking and who doesn't, or if anybody deserves a spanking. Like, And we think that's so simple. We think that's so basic, but... It's really not because those are the kind of things that you can walk away from and say, y'all stop playing, leave me alone and go have some fun outside. Bye. But if you're going to exercise what it is to be a king, you're going to have to figure out, okay, who are the witnesses? Um, What's the standard? What happens to the person if they lies? Uh, Does it deserve a spanking or not? You know, how many times have we worked through this? It takes, and that's kingly work. And that's the kind of work that you have to be a good priest to be able to do. You have to be the guy who knows what the laws are, how you're supposed to do this thing. And it takes a king to execute those things, priestly law. And so it, and it's um, and so part of the things that you were just saying is like, man, we don't have good kings and we don't have good king. We can't be kingly because we're not good priests. <laughs> right. Right. And um, and it's hard to be a good priest without a prophet. You need the word, you know. And so. It's just funny how all of those things are a form, I guess, too, a form of maturity. But um, the, you're right. The more that I'm reading the Gospels, too, the more I'm just reading just biblical law um, and the Deuteronomy, the more I'm understanding, like, man, we really just don't. We don't have a we don't have wisdom. We don't have yeah. wisdom. And we haven't spent enough time in God's word to gain it and glean it to be good priests, you know? Um, and, well, and, I, and I think we 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 
are willing to submit. We, we are willing to come in and bring our questions to the text, but we're not willing to submit what questions we ought to be asking to the text. <laughs> right. We, we don't. Um, what do you mean? So by that? We we're willing to come and say, okay, here's this, here's the thing I need to know the answer to. What does the Bible say? What we're not willing to, what we often don't do is come and say, what does the Bible tell me I should be asking it? Mm. What, what does the Bible tell me I should be, uh, what, what questions should I be asking that I don't realize I'm not asking, right? And let the, the Bible inform um, uh, the, the, our imagination, our questions, our queries as well. Um, because you know, I, I think we um, we're happy to because I think that tells us that we aren't in control. <laughs> right. Well, you know, also too, it's like part of it is I, I, I kind of I think it's some of the Nicodemus effect too, where it's like, aren't you a teacher of the law and you don't right. know what yeah, it means you to, to be born again? I mean, if you if you buy into some of the um, the modern Christian evangelical talk, you act, you would think that a lot of people um, believe being born again believe being born again was something that was new that came along with Jesus, but Jesus didn't think so. Right? Yeah. What well, you know the it, it you know and how um, when the Book of Hebrews says, "Oh, well, you're just getting the milk of the word," uh, and he lists into that the doctrine of baptism <laughs> as the milk like this is the this is the baby stuff, baby stuff right? man. and we we're, we're not even there right now like we're not we're not there no we're, we, not even we're, close bro not even close right we're not even we're, close that's something that we can't um seem to find any sort of agreement on right now in the modern church which i think means it should be a sign to us that we say, well, shoot, we haven't got our infant stuff together. We're not ready to be Kings. Um, we need to get our, we, we need to stop and say, how could the doctrine of baptism be the, the you know, baby theology? <laughs> that's, that's a hard one. That's a hard question for us, but I think it's because our imagination is uh, undis undiscipled. And so undisciplined, this, but undiscipled mostly. Part of the reason I wanted you to go through what you just went through over the last 40 minutes was because I wanted to talk about what you what you got going on next, which is really exciting. So right before we got on here, you sent me a text message that messed up the whole thing I was planning <laughs> on talking about today. I think you did it on purpose because you you didn't do your study for last night. Yep. And and so <laughs> I was like, I gotta distract him from <laughs> and it was from a what distraction. I was supposed to be ready for. Well, yeah, it was a good distraction, but you're um it should be up now. Um. Yeah, classes for the FL FLFU. So FLF University, you're going to be starting to do class on that. But and you got your first course up and ready to go. When does it start? Um, I want to. Well, I would like to start it. It, it starts when I've we, we, I've got to get a certain number of people before I can start it. So, but um, I I'm hoping that sometime the second maybe the second or third week in october um we can kick it off so maybe right after the 
the conference the week after the conference will we'll get it kicked off and so it's once a week for eight weeks we're gonna do an apologetic i'm gonna teach an apologetics class and um i'm calling it apologetic habits developing apologetic habits of thought because it's not really a traditional apologetics class in the sense that we're gonna but it because we're not just going through the questions people think they should be asking or the the questions that people will be asking but we're also trying to see how people in the modern world answer the questions the bible puts forward as the questions humanity should be asking we should we should call this a cosmological apologetic that would be yeah that'd be a good way but i don't know if people would they have no idea what we're talking about but everybody knocks on plugwood they'd be like oh i know what he's talking about i'm in (laughs) yeah you know but you're right that's Interesting, because that's when I was going through looking at kind of the titles. You still, you know, you still got some presuppositional stuff in there. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, I, I, I think that presuppositional. Well, first off, presuppositional and classical, I think, is a false dichotomy. Oh, interesting. Um, but he, only because the um, a classical apologetic was just they were just still dealing in a shared cosmology presuppositionalism arises when you no longer have a shared cosmology right so that's so but the that so that's the that's where historically speaking van till has to come along and say you know we don't have a shared cosmology with them anymore right right that that's gone that that the it's and but at the same time that Van Til is saying it. C.S. Lewis is saying it. Um, you uh, you have G.K. Chesterton had been saying it, right? So Van Til's not the only one developing what we call presuppositional apologetics. You've got other people doing it in England right before him. Um, and then you have uh, other people in America are beginning to develop it as well. He's very... He, he's a very clear communicator and he's de- he, and he's developing developing it in a philosophical setting uh, but that presuppositional apologetic is just saying when we when what do you do when you don't have a shared cosmology right this is how the the classical apologetics they will say since we've got a shared cosmology we've got this starting point here's some arguments that you can make all, the classical arguments for the existence of God don't start getting questioned until the cosmology gets shifted. Right. So the it's it's when you it's not that Aquinas you know when you read somebody like Aquinas arguing for the existence of God, he knows and even mentions. Um, I'd have to go find it, but it's in the it, it's in his section on the five arguments for the existence of God. He even mentions that he knows that these don't bring people to the un, to jesus right that that he just he, but he says but this is something that we that that uh, is still important for us to put forward for the for the sake of our neighbors right we should be showing no no there are good reasons to believe in the existence of god but the um so I- anyway that that classical presuppositional I think is that's a really good. I like how you did that. That that kind of merged them together because I've heard people even who are presuppositional say yeah, when I'm talking to somebody who is, you know, more even in, in my side of it, 
I'll use a more classical method. And so they'll bounce back and forth depending on who, what kind of person they're talking to. And it's because right. they're, they're sharing a cosmology with the person that there's no, their presuppositions are already set. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause CS Lewis, he will, he will drop a presuppositionalist hammer right in the middle of an argument in, you know, we'll do it in mere Christianity or in Christian reflections or God in the dock and, where he just says, look, if we don't, if we can't agree on this up front, then here's the issue that you run into. You have nothing, no, you end up with nothing left. <laughs> right? he was, but since we are going to agree on the existence of reality, right? right? So he, so he, he, he knows and fully understands and has a well-developed what we would call presuppositionalism. But he um, also knows that, you know, unless you're dealing with somebody who's actually dug into maybe a French existentialism or a, a, a German deconstructionism or something, you're not really dealing with somebody. You're you're dealing with somebody that still has one foot on a historic on a historic Christian cosmology, uh, because uh, you can't actually live without it, right? It's that, that's it's impossible. It, yeah, that's it's what impossible. I was talking about earlier. Yeah, and and you know, that cosmology touches everything. How you do everything, politics? Yeah. I mean, it's it touches everything. Oh, I just broke my microphone. This is what <laughs> happens? This is what happens when you have your studio in your house and you've moved it from. I try to do something because I'm I'm going to be doing so much at home. All right, I want to talk about just real quickly how many people are actually. You have a limited amount of seating in these classes. Yeah, so yeah, it's like twenty, twenty three. What's the number? Yeah, so uh, twenty two, and then after that, all. You know, if there's if, if a person comes along and says, no, but I really need to take it this time because I'll offer it again. But I've, I've gone back and forth. Do I want to do an apologetics one and then apologetics two or just yeah. offer apologetics one a couple of times? Or I don't know how we'll do that. But um, so that that's the first class uh, is that we're going to offer and fill up. And then the second one that will start in November is called the mission of God for the family. And it's a, um, it, it's an, a, I don't want to call it a biblical theology of the family because I don't think, because I think biblical theology is a term that's been co-opted to mean something I know. different. I, everybody um, uses that. Yeah. So, um, so, but what it, what is it uh, to letting the Bible tell us what, what our family is for? and then how it's supposed to function. Um, so the, uh, it's an attempt to, to dig in at a, at a deeper level than we normally do to a theology of family. So, um, and a, some of this is cosmological, but some of this is, is actually trying to read the Bible as a story um, of a family. Right, the story really of two families is what it, it is. The family, the devil's family, you're of your father, the devil, and um, of uh, Christ's family, uh, all the way back to Cain you and know, Abel. There is um, a big attack on manhood and womanhood. I think people have missed the the target on some of this because they aren't talking about. They're coming after single individuals are coming after the man they're coming after the woman they're coming after the kids 
but nobody's put it together that they're actually trying to destroy the family union <laughs> unit. <laughs> right. Like, like the thing they want to destroy is not like an individual by itself. They know that that's, that's, that's right. That's part of the wickedness of it, but they want the family itself demolished. Right. Right. And they want to restructure it and recalibrate it to work for themselves. But I've, it's been well, disappointing. This, that's not how you would think that be, would have been. The, go ahead. Well, be, but because the family is an inter, interdependent unit, you only have to get one of them. That's right. To destroy it, right? So the the um, the generation gap, uh, feminism, and chauvinism are all three simultaneous attacks on the family. On the family. And, right. and you you would think that we have more conferences talking about that, especially at the current time and era that we're in. Was like there's such a high since the sick man even before that I'm sure, but particularly there's a high concentration on family destruction. Mm -hmm. And I don't see enough of an attention put on that. Do you? Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I don't. I, I. So. The attention, well, here, here's, and I, I don't, I don't mean this. I, I don't. This, no caveats. Don't mean, Just say yeah, it. No, no you don't get to caveat it. No, I well, know. I know. Go ahead. Okay. We have, you will have conferences or in within specific conferences, you'll have something like responding to feminism responding to this or that what we don't have is a positive vision for our families here is what your family is for here is what god has given this is why god created families here's what families are for here's what families do and here's how families accomplish what god gave them to do right we don't have a positive vision for the mission that a family should be on and so we only live defensively as if we can defend against if we defend against the attacks that automatically the family will be good but that's actually not true and so we we pour all that's of our thing. energy oh jason that's the same thing we've done on the whole conversation with christian nationalism mm -hmm. it's like people see christian nationalism rising and they've just come up we got to defend against christian nationalism they do and they never point out well, here's the way forward here's yeah, here's, here's the how here's the plan and not some Lord, and, and I'm so sick of um this false sense of well, let's just be faithful. I like faithfulness actually has a strategic yeah. plan put forward in order to function. Like it's, you can't just throw it out there. Like do faithful yeah. doing what so that we can topple idols. Like, what do you mean? Because faithfulness has a promise that's connected to it. It's, it's a prerequisite of the covenant. The covenant has some succession has blessings that come with it, right? Has sanctions. So you're so right because I'm hearing a lot of people critique, but then they don't lay out here's here's a plan, a Christian political science for what it looks like to engage, even. Right. And so, well, and it, so yeah, I had a I had a really good conversation with my pastor recently about that exact thing, where he 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 said he was like the the problem is. And just how he how he put it was, he said the the problem is the church has a specific role, and if it tries to do the role of some other jurisdiction, then it's not going to accomplish its role. And I said, well, what what is its role? Says, we convert people, we disciple people, 
and then we send them off to do, go transform their jurisdiction. I was like, yeah, that's what, so if you, if, if that's what you mean by faithful, like we, we convert well, people from their idols to the worship of the true God. And then whatever it is that the God has called them to, we disciple them in that role. Right. So if you got a politician, you disciple that politician to how do you be a Christian politician, right? How do you be a Christian plumber? How do you be a Christian husband, wife, right? What all your other jurisdictions, the church teaches you how to, how to apply your faith, um, the scriptures into that jurisdiction. If that's what you mean by faithfulness, then we're all on the same. Absolutely. You convert whoever it is, whoever is around you, you convert them and then you disciple them to go do their job. But we, we often, we say just be faithful instead of saying disciple the nations. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I think we miss in that in the idea of just conversion itself is a whole lot of bringing covenant lawsuit, right? Like, to, to explain that. So I think that there's, um, when we see wickedness and we see evil, uh, particularly from a nation, we are we're to say with bold voices, you don't get to do that. And it's in this, the rebuke that comes because we have a King who is reigning and they are breaking his standards and his laws. And we get to bring the lawsuit and deliver it. Like, Hey, we're bringing you up on charges before the King of King. Here's, and here's what was, what it was, was really hard. So my city council or the city council, I don't, I live outside the city. So it's not my city council, but the city one of the cities in my county, um, they, but where our church is in that city, um, they had a they they were going to respond to the uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade. My pastor was the only one who showed up, right, and spoke about how here's how you ought to respond. You know, I'm a pastor here in town. Here's the response that you should give. Um, and uh, the but think if every pastor showed up mm-hmm. right, Come on and now. said right every pastor showed up and said hey here's but I don't know maybe most Christians don't believe the church is a public institution anymore right a real so government church, yeah. a real government right that has a real voice that has a re- so so he showed up said here you go here's the here is um, and because he's the only one, he could say, here's what the church says, which is that's there's something nice about that. <laughs> but um, because there weren't any other pastors there to speak. Um, but that that is that's that's a, a different view, that is a different view of the church, even than 200 years ago, um, maybe, maybe 100 years ago. I mean, in America, it was eight, 1880s is when it started to shift away from the church as a public institution so that's 100 150 years ago um so but 200 years ago the the pastor is seen as a public office you know that he holds a public office who's he's a he's an ambassador of the kingdom of god to the other kingdoms you know to the kingdoms of the earth um so there so there is the discipleship um 
and then the ambassadorship are the two things that the that if you so it, you know i mean if you're like we've got to be faithful but you're not willing to define what you're being faithful to then i think it, it's an excuse yeah. to not be faithful have you have you're you seen your just be faithful is an excuse to not be faithful but if but if if you're willing to say well here's what i mean by just be faithful and have the conversation and enter into the conversation with other Christians and you're because you're actually seeking out like because that is the truth like it is the, just be faithful is the right answer uh, as long but but you got to have it's got to have content yeah you got to be at the animus <laughs> um <laughs> see I, I told you everybody agrees with me uh, <laughs> so I, I gotta ask you this because I wanted to ask you last time, but we didn't have enough time, and we're about to run out now. But because on that topic, oh, okay, so you have an apologetics one that's hopefully going to drop in the next couple of weeks, mid October. You have a family. What 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 do you call it? Because you mission didn't want to call God it for the fam- I think I'm going to call it mission the of fam- God for the family. Cool. So the FLF University is about to get heavy. Because we're gonna have start having a lot more content come through there, and you're yep. gonna be doing a lot of that content. And f- I think we talked about this: is you're gonna be having other people come in and teach some courses yeah. as well. Yeah, I'm just um, waiting for some confirmation, but I think we've got, um, you know, a book, uh, uh, writing like a no- writing novel, a course on writing a novel, which oh. I think is gonna be fantastic. Um, so can you do one uh, just on like writing? Course on economics. Yeah, I oh. want to do one on writing. Yeah, but I think we're gonna get one on family finances, which I think is gonna be a great. Oh, who's doing that one? Uh, John Kapilak. He's a um, he's my brother-in-law actually, but he teaches a great course on on basically you know how to submit your family finances to the Lord. And oh, it's really good. I need to take that one. Um, <laughs> I need. To yeah, take me all too. <laughs> uh. So um, so that that one will be really good. Very practical. Um. I want to get somebody that can teach on investment, um, but I haven't found anybody yet. So, and um, but then also, uh, so I want to do one uh, like the Great Conversation one, one, two, and three um, on the uh, the kind of the history of the development of the conversation of the West, um, kind of Western oh, philosophical philosophical literary. So I've got I've 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 got a th- uh, a number of teachers that in mind that hopefully we can share that load. Um, can I just, so do- the part, the point of the reason for doing the FLF university is we talked about this before and what we want to do is, uh, was it, um, Oh, who's the guy who wrote the, uh, president of uh, Princeton, Elliot, CH Elliot, Charles Elliot. Was it? Yeah, that was it. Charles Elliot said that he wanted to create an education for a man who could not get one. And so he created the five foot bookshelf. You told me about this. Right. And mm-hmm. he said he picked out and selected a certain amount of books that would take a man somewhere between five and 10 years, but he would need to have a full, a free man's education. So he's like, some people got into work and got into the field, start taking care of their family, and don't have a full time schedule to, to go to school. But he created a way for them to be able, if they got this bookshelf, they can still have a free man's education. And it's like, no right. one is really, I want to do something that gives us the ability to give people who are podcasting, who are doing, uh, who can listen to podcasts because they're driving all the time, to be able to have access to get the basically a free man's kind of a classical education yeah. 
in, in, in a different format. And that's what the FLFU is turning into, being able to develop that type of education, um, but inside of, of these sessions that we're making. And so it's a free man's education. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that I think the, the and that's what the what I want the great conversation classes to be the backbone of it. Mm. Right. That says, let me give you so because the goal is literacy. Mm. That that's that's the goal. And but you have to have some idea of where you are in the conversation to be able to really be literate, right? So um, mm. you know, literacy literacy in western civilization means that you can pick up any one of the great books um and with a minimal introduction here's where it is in the conversation be able to enter in and say oh i know i know basically what came before you know i know the the outlines of the conversation and so i can enter into it anywhere that's the goal um and so well i'm not literally <laughs> what's it it takes uh, significant it takes a significant commitment but not um but but not uh not a significant amount of time necessarily if you've got a teacher right if you have to right and, and so that's what i that's what i'm hoping the universe the the university can provide is the teachers that say well let me guide you through the great conversation um so you don't have to figure out Plato on your own. The reality is Plato is not hard to read, um, but but you still need a, some some introduction um, and some uh, you know a, a guide and um, to know my what the conversation is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, and because you know the if I could if I could sit in the corner with with my pipe and a old fashioned and and Italian Renaissance poetry all day. That's what I would do with my life. Right. That's, that's, that's the, but the, uh, um, but if you don't have anybody to converse with um, because nobody else is there, then you've got to become a teacher. Well, I think that's what um, most dads would love to be for their family. Right. Like that. Um, my daughter was just on her first, just got invited to her first podcast to be a guest um you, and uh and it makes me really proud because but we've it's the conversations we've been having um as you raise up you know you raise your children up as conversation partners in the great conversation and then you see them go out and kill it <laughs> you know like they're um it's that's what most dads I think want. That's what they want to be. But they we just need a guide. Um, you know, we we need a conversation partner to get us to the point where we can then be that conversation partner for our kids. Man, so, we gotta get that we gotta get that website up so people can You said it should be up this week, right? Or today. I, I think it's I think it'll be up by the end of today, yeah. Man, I do is there gonna be a list of all the courses that people could sign up for too or that's um, what I'm working on that right now. Okay. But right now the so, apologetics one, there, I'm going to yeah. take that one. I'm going to, and, and you don't have to be there live, but the only way to get them is. Yeah. yeah so it'll courses. be, it'll be recorded. Um, it'll be once a week in, in one evening a week, probably Tuesday evenings. Um, and then uh, it'll be recorded. And so if you can't make it, then you can still watch it. And then, 
Oh, but it'd be um, great to ask questions and stuff. Yep, that's the idea. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, so next week we're actually going to get back into. Yeah, we'll let's we'll finish the image of good. Yeah, you know, I'm like page 89, I think, is where I stopped it. Just so you know, I didn't do my reading either. And okay. I was trying to get it done, but I didn't get it done. So I was very, very glad you sent the apology. We didn't even go through all the stuff on the apologetics, but next time we'll we'll do that. <laughs> so hey, yeah, dude. What, and I got to page 94, so I still was ahead. Oh, of you're, you're, you could have, you could have talked. Uh, you're five pages ahead of me. So yeah. that would have been great. 